Hello, everyone. This is Jason Jacobs, and welcome to My Climate Journey. This show follows my journey to interview a wide range of guests to better understand and make sense of the formidable problem of climate change and try to figure out how people like you and I can help. Hey, everyone. Jason here. Today's guest is Noah Deitch. Noah is the executive director of Carbon 180. I was super excited for this talk because as I've made the rounds, there's two things that I've identified. One is that carbon removal is a big lever in the climate fight. And the second is that Carbon 180 is at the forefront of that. So Noah's name probably came up 50 times before I finally got introduced to him. And I was excited to have him come on the show. We covered a number of things in this episode, including Noah's background and what led him to founding Carbon 180. We talked about Carbon 180 and what the organization is trying to do. We talked about the progress that they've made so far and where they're going next. And we also talked about the general state of the carbon removal industry and what it will take to help it to reach its fullest potential. Finally, we talked about climate change overall, the nature of the problem, and how anybody that's concerned about the problem can best help. I thought Noah was a terrific guest, and I hope you do as well. Noah Deitch. Welcome to the show. Thanks for having me. Thanks for being here. It's funny. So I'm about seven months into my learning tour, and I'm just going to move a little bit because I have the sun in my eyes, but I'm about seven months into my, my learning tour and about six weeks into the podcast. But as I've made the rounds, I swear it, it, it's like carbon removal is such a big piece of the equation. And anytime the topic came up, people would say, you need to talk to Noah Deitch and Carbon 180. Like it, it probably came up, your name's probably come up 50 times before I finally met you yesterday for the first time. It's great to get finally connected. And I, I hope the hype can live up to the the reality here. Excited for the conversation. Yeah, I, ju I just wanted to put that out there, like to try to psych you out and get in your head up front just so that it sets off the conversation on the wrong foot. No, yeah. Just kidding. But the one disclaimer I should say to our listeners is that typically I do prep and research and send topics in advance and and Noah can react like we didn't do any of that in this case we happen to be at the same conference here in Sausalito and it was great to see him and meet him and I didn't want to lose this opportunity to do this episode so we're doing it live improv podcast and the cool thing here too is that in some of these cases I've known people and we've met many times and so I'm constantly thinking like it's like stuff I already know but it's like on behalf of the listeners, right, and I keep saying that, in this case, I really don't know that much, so, so I'll be learning along with everybody. But I mean, maybe a good, a good place to start is just, what is Carbon 180? Yeah, of course. So Carbon 180 is a fairly new nonprofit. We're on a mission to figure out how to build an economy that sequesters more carbon than we emit, which might sound like a, a fairly anodyne goal, but at the end of the day, it's going to be amazingly ambitious for us to stop pulling carbon out of the ground at the billion ton scale that we're doing today and start doing the reverse of taking it out of the air and returning it back to the ground. So we work on all sorts of different strategies to do that from planting trees to farming in ways that put carbon in the soil to building big industrial machinery that essentially filters carbon directly out of the, the air and from there puts it back either deep underground where it's permanently stored or into our, our built environment for some sort of valuable use in buildings or roads or some other opportunity. I mean, I've heard from a number of people as I've been trying to get my brain around all of this, that no matter how much we 
reduce our emissions or even if we take them down to net zero that we we still have so much carbon in the air that we're going to have to remove a bunch of it to get back to alignment or you know kind of equilibrium <laughs> and we don't know how or do we know how like what's the state of the state there well yeah so that's the question that brought me to this space is i came from an energy sector background i had worked a long time on how do you reduce pollution and when it comes to the more conventional pollutants that come out of our energy sector, they have a feature where when it rains, all of that pollutant comes out of the atmosphere. It's very bad. You put sulfur in the atmosphere, it comes out as, as acid rain and so forth. And I wondered why didn't carbon dioxide do the same thing? And that's a very basic question for somebody that has a background in, in atmospheric chemistry. But I came at this from a, a business perspective. And so I didn't have any of that that fundamental science knowledge. And what I learned was was really shocking, which was that the carbon that we have dug up from the ground and put into the air stays in the atmosphere for a very long time. What happens in reality is that some of that carbon comes out very quickly, gets absorbed by the ocean, it gets absorbed by plants, but a good fraction stays in the atmosphere for not just decades, but centuries. And it, all of that carbon has begun to accumulate over the past 100 plus years of industrial activity. And that's what's really causing our, our climate problem that we have today. So where I had entered this problem was, let's just stop putting carbon into the atmosphere, renewable energy, energy efficiency, electric vehicles, all of these conventional solutions that we think about when we think about climate change. It's probably where most people enter this problem. Well, most people don't enter this problem or haven't yet, but but the ones that do, that's typically it seems like where they start. And so for me, it was just a naive question of, well, if the carbon doesn't come out naturally, do we need to clean it up? And I think the more you dig into this question, all of the scientific research on this topic says that, yes, we have to figure out not just how to reduce emissions faster than anyone is talking about today in the, the policy or business world. But we also then have to go and clean up a lot of the carbon that remains in the atmosphere from these centuries of past fossil fuel extraction and emission into the atmosphere. And that was the piece of the puzzle that was a, a light bulb for me. I thought I was a, a person involved in the clean energy space. I worked in policy. I worked in business. And I had never heard about this. I thought that I was somebody that was fairly literate when it came to, to climate change. But this really hit me as something that was quite surprising and was something that I, the more I dug into, the more urgent that I saw it as being a necessary, but just very missing or underappreciated piece of the, the climate solution portfolio. And when was that time-wise that you were starting to get turned on to this problem? Yeah. So when I was starting to explore this problem was a few years ago, one of the, the more recent IPCC reports, this is the Intergovernmental Panel on Climate Change, the big UN body that does climate change assessments to say, is the climate changing? What are the impacts of that changing climate? And then how might we start to mitigate that problem and address it? This huge report, thousands of pages of, of scientific information in it, was just coming out at the time and I was looking through the the solutions piece of this and saw this big wedge in there where it says we have to reduce our emissions through all of these more conventional strategies and in addition start to build out this carbon removal wedge at the bottom 
at a scale that was huge. In these models, it shows us cleaning up as much carbon as we're going to be emitting by the end of the century. Or putting it another way, even if we reduce our carbon emissions by, say, 80% by the, the end of the century, we're going to be cleaning up more carbon than that carbon that's going into the atmosphere then. Billions of tons of carbon removal. And I just had no clue what the solution set looked like to actually get such large-scale projects happening. So is that where you started, is, is trying to dig in on where we were on the trajectory of figuring out how to, how to remove carbon at scale? Yeah, and for me, it was trying to figure out where I could have impact. I'd worked in the sort of conventional clean energy space, working with big electric utilities and oil and gas companies, some Fortune 500 companies on sustainability efforts at the corporate level. And what I saw was the action in that space was very, very slow. People were trying to solve for this very small subset of clean energy solutions that would also make those companies more money or at least not lose them any money relative to the baseline. And that subset of, of intersecting opportunities of it's clean and it makes money was growing every day, but certainly not fast enough to actually meet what all of these climate scientists were saying. And the emissions numbers were showing that, that if you look at global emissions, they weren't coming down quickly. In fact, they were going up. In some years, they were remaining stagnant. But even today, we see emissions continue to rise globally, even in the face of all of this progress. To me, that was a clear indication that we needed to figure out not just what this incremental change looked like, but what are those big levers that we can pull to actually bend the curve on emissions downward and not just downward, I realized, but then below zero and start to clean up large amounts of carbon. And the incremental change that you were seeing at the time was mostly focused on emissions reduction, net new emissions? So it actually wasn't focused on a specific type of solution. It was focused on a specific type of company. I got to work with startups, not at startups, but seeing various types of clean tech startups try and sell their products to large incumbents, and in some cases, try and disrupt them and take share of the market. Those companies were moving with much greater purpose and speed and efficacy than a lot of the big incumbent energy companies were. And that's what drew me to this space initially, was where is the exciting clean tech startup field of the future going? And what are those companies of the future going to look like? What are they going to do? Are they going to be renewable energy companies, electric vehicle companies, battery companies, smart grid companies? And I think the answer is yes to all of those, but then also this big carbon removal wedge. And that to me was a really exciting uh, almost discovery for me personally. Okay. So you saw the IPCC report and what kind of scale would be required. You saw that we were very early on on that path. You saw that the big companies were slow. You saw that the startups were quick and nimble. And so you were drawn to startups at the same time as you were drawn to this white space that was an important piece of the puzzle, which is removing carbon from the atmosphere and cleaning up our shit. Exactly. And that that's where Carbon 180 really came from, was trying to understand how in this very new field of carbon removal, can we bring that enthusiasm that the startups were bringing on the for-profit side to really create this field 
and start to get the solutions from the lab. And there were a ton of really exciting research projects happening. There were a lot of aspiring entrepreneurs trying to figure out how to bring solutions to market. And the question was, how can we help this entire ecosystem grow in as effective and as catalytic a way as we could? So where'd you start? So we started in ourselves very much like a for-profit startup would. We went out and tried to interview as many quote unquote customers as we could. So we went out and talked to not just clean tech venture capitalists, but folks that worked at other environmental nonprofits and climate philanthropies and government agencies. And part of this was just my education to understand if I was missing something. Like, why aren't, are, are you seeing the same climate math that I'm seeing in terms of the carbon removal? And many folks said, yeah, it's a huge problem. You should figure out how to work on it. What was simultaneously exciting and challenging was there was zero consensus on what to do. Some people said, go do research. Others said, yeah, go work on policy. Others said, yeah, maybe you could try and start a for-profit venture in this space. But everyone had, even within that suite of activities, different things that they were excited about. Some were very excited about soil carbon sequestration, others direct air capture, others turning CO2 into cement. And part of this enthusiasm to me was seeing that whole portfolio and seeing that what was needed in the space was not just me trying to figure out what to do, but figuring out how we can get thousands of people all working on different pieces of the carbon removal puzzle in a way that we could do all of the things that needed to be done in parallel. And so that's what really gave birth the idea of Carbon 180, which as a nonprofit, we really seek to convene that ecosystem and help bring the resources to entrepreneurs that want to start companies in this space, to help policymakers design and implement policies that are effective for these various solutions at the scales they're at today, and to work with researchers to understand where this field is going, what the future holds, and what the really smart shots on goal are for us to take and bring those messages to the policymakers, help businesses get started in ways that reflect the best available research that we have on the field today. And that that's where Carbon 180 really came from. I would say where when we started in 2015, we had very little information about where in that portfolio it made sense to get started. And so one of the early things that we worked on was helping to get a National Academy study funded. And this study looked at exactly that question of how do we start to think about funding research and development activities across this broad portfolio of solutions? Because it was very unclear about how much funding was needed, which of the solutions should get what types of funding and so forth. And who who actually executed that study? Was it your team? No, so that, that was a National Academy study that they themselves executed, and they're an independent group. So after we helped them get that study funded, we stepped back for the full duration of the study, which ended up being about three years. And they went and they got participation from leading academics across each one of these subfields of carbon removal, went out, 
sourced all of the primary literature that they could find and made a consensus assessment on how much funding to give to each of these programs or really each of these solution areas if we wanted to achieve the scale that the Academy saw as essential for negative emissions. If we want to have a billion ton per year carbon removal portfolio, how much research and development funding is needed today to get started and and really unlock that economy of the future? That was the question that they were setting out to answer. Okay, so you set them on, down on a path and you step back while they did their work and then what you do with your time in the, in the interim? Yeah, so we definitely did more than just twiddle our thumbs and wait for the, <laughs> the academies. Part of the I yeah, part of the challenge at this point was the science community was really starting to have consensus on this topic as being important, not having a silver bullet solution, needing to get started on this portfolio of activities in parallel. But what we were seeing was that that message and information was not making its way outside of the academy and into policy circles business circles, and the broader philanthropy and nonprofit community. And so what we set out to do was really help change that narrative and go out and understand what people understood about carbon removal today, what they were worried about, what information they they thought they needed, and do a lot of work in helping to share all of this technical information that we were seeing and help them essentially come to their own conclusions about what to do in this space. And I think once people start to look at the portfolio of carbon removal solutions as an essential piece to solving our climate puzzle, all of a sudden this becomes not an academic exercise, but one of possibility and a widely expanded solution set. So for us, that what was so exciting was to see people look at things like soil carbon and say, oh, wow, We can take carbon in the air, change our management practices, make farmers better off because they have healthier soils that also sequester carbon. We were seeing businesses thinking about, hey, carbon emissions, if we just let the CO2 escape from our our process today, it goes into the air and pollutes the atmosphere. But what if we could pull that back out, add clean energy, and turn it into something valuable, whether it was a cement, a chemical, a plastic, a fuel, These were really exciting paradigm shifts that we saw happening where climate change was moving from, oh, this is just a bad thing. It's going to be terrible. It's going to be expensive. It's going to require taxes. And in many cases, all of that still remains true. But carbon removal expands the aperture of how you turn that problem into an opportunity. And how do you take the the problem that we have created and left for ourselves and start to solve it in a way that brings together creative thinking and innovation and starts to create this economy of the future that's not predicated on carbon that's in the ground, but builds its carbon-based building blocks from carbon that's in the sky. And that shift from carbon pollution to a potential resource back on the ground, I think was a really interesting thing for a lot of folks to see both in the policy world and in the the business and investment community because it means that we don't have to pick between can we solve climate change and can we have a growing and prosperous economy it's 
how do we have a growing and prosperous economy in a way that reduces emissions really steeply and effectively and then keeps on going and cleans up the carbon that's in the atmosphere and tackles this really wicked problem of climate change. So as you made the rounds and you started uncovering that people through a combination of education and just evolution and thinking as they started coming to their own conclusions from understanding the problem, that they're starting to get excited about this and the possibilities from a solution standpoint, then how did you envision that Carbon 180 could play a role longer term? So what we saw at this stage was a lot of the questions we were getting were no longer what is carbon removal? Should we do this? Does this even make sense? I think people were, for whatever reason, whether it was the climate math or the business opportunity, were understanding that carbon removal was something to do. They just didn't know what we needed to do today to start moving the field forward. Policymakers wanted to know what what types of policies should we actually be passing today that help advance the field most effectively? What does smart policymaking look like in carbon removal? We also were hearing from investors and entrepreneurs that were saying, hey, we see some interesting opportunities here, but how can we start to build companies around this carbon removal theme today that make money within the existing context and prepare for a future where we're actually starting to pay for carbon removal services? All of these really operational questions were starting to be much more prevalent instead of these theoretical, more research questions about, should we even do this? If so, where, at what scale, with what solutions? And so that's what motivated us to shift our work to really try and dig into, okay, how do we help the policy and business community figure out how to move forward in this space and develop really effective policies and get those policies passed? while also bringing the business community to the carbon removal space in a meaningful way. And what we found is that it's it's a positively reinforcing set of activities that we're working on. In many ways, because we work with the business community, we're able to understand what's holding companies back in this space, what's holding investment back. And so we can help policymakers understand where these market failures are and what's needed to get to scale. At the same time, those policymakers are looking for people beyond nonprofits and academics going to them and saying this is important. And what we were seeing is that this business community were really good champions for carbon removal in policy circles that could stand up and help show that the the world needs carbon removal and that when policymakers take action in this space, it's something that their constituents like and will positively reinforce that sort of policy behavior. And that that was a really encouraging thing to see. And I think it's created a, a very bipartisan uh, space when it comes to the carbon removal field. And that's very different from the rest of the climate conversation in many cases, which still remains highly polarized here in the US. And the fact that so many groups from environmental NGOs, to farm and labor groups, to businesses and investors, both big and small, we're all seeing the promise in carbon removal. 
was something that I think has really enabled the field to have a, a broad bipartisan support from policymakers. And I'm really encouraged that that can be something that the field continues to seek that sort of consensus and cooperation and starts to lead to policy change that can be positively reinforcing for the carbon removal field as a whole. It sounds like if, if I'm hearing the state of the state is that there's a bunch of exciting R&D happening in more of a research setting and that there's policymakers that are increasingly at least starting to have the dialogues in a more serious way about what types of policies might, might unlock this innovation. And increasingly business leaders are coming to the table and having similar discussions. Is that where we are? We're in kind of a discussion phase or are we doing stuff? We're doing stuff, but I would say that what we're doing right now is small and incremental, which is really significant at an early stage, but we need to move with pace and with scale. And so that's going to require much larger funding flowing to this field, both from the public and private sector alike, as well as policymakers making changes so that the markets really start to value carbon removal solutions and start to pull those strategies to market. And that's going to be the big shift. It's when we think about policy, we think about the art of the possible. Right now, the art of the possible is significant, but still too small. We have to expand what is possible when it comes to carbon removal. To put some numbers on that, the National Academies essentially recommended a billion dollar per year scale R&D Apollo program for carbon removal. Right now, the total funding that is available is on the order of tens to hundreds of millions, depending on exactly how you count. So you can see that we're short by a factor of 10 to 100 in terms of just the R&D funding that we need. We also recognize that R&D funding is not sufficient in and of itself to catalyze this new carbon economy. You also have to start creating policies that pull the solutions to market. Exactly like what happened with solar and wind and batteries, where we had big government research programs, big corporate research programs, but what enabled these markets to take off was mandates that said states would have to buy a certain fraction of their energy from these new clean energy sources, or that the federal government will give you a tax credit if you want to have renewable energy. So we know the playbook when it comes to a lot of the clean energy solutions. What we need to do is now start developing those in a smart way for the specific portfolio of carbon removal strategies and start to turn these policy ideas into legislation and, and new policy. This is not an area that I know a whole lot about, but as I've made the round, what I've heard from some people is that this will never be able to be done at the scale that is required and that land use will be a huge issue and that it's unclear who would pay for it. Are those the types of concerns that you're hearing as well? And if so, how do you respond to them? Yeah, so those are, are interesting concerns and they're certainly challenges that the field faces. But I think that for any set of new technologies, there will be skeptics. And I think we heard the same thing for every renewable energy source, for electric vehicles, for the past decades that 
people said solar will never be cost competitive. Wind will never be cost competitive. Electric vehicles will never be cost competitive. And what we've seen is that if you start to invest in the research and the incentives to get these solutions manufactured at scale, they come down in cost considerably. And all of a sudden, many energy analysts see a very large clean energy future as inevitable. Many transportation analysts see an electric vehicle future as inevitable. And so I think we have a really bad history of saying things are impossible when we're not facing actual technical limits. We're just facing our current conception of what economics look like. And today, the economics of many of these solutions are more expensive than the comparable fossil-fueled or conventional alternative. But at the same time, we haven't started to deploy these solutions at any meaningful scale. And so we don't know how quickly they're going to come down in cost once we do. We don't know with significant research funding where these solutions will reduce in cost to. But we have a lot of analysis now that says if we do invest in these strategies, there is every reason to believe that they can come down in cost enough to be deployed at a large scale. And what is possible here is a function of our investment in making these strategies possible and the political will that we can marshal to make strategies scalable. There aren't technical limits to doing a lot of these strategies. And when we do run into technical limits, like, of course, we can't just plant the entire globe with forests like that. That makes no sense. But there are a lot of strategies that once we start to exhaust the low hanging fruit of forest restoration opportunities, for example, we can figure out how to deploy technology to get a portfolio of solutions to scale. And the technical solutions, they have no real biophysical limit. They only have economic limits, which are a function of how much we as a society are willing to invest in them. The economics piece is also a really interesting question to me. I think one of the examples or analogies that really resonates with me is the idea of trash collection or waste management more broadly. That nobody ever says, oh, there's not going to be a customer willing to pay for for waste management ever, which in some cases is true. You're just throwing out your trash. But at the end of the day, society decides that we prefer to not have our trash just pile up on the street. And so we organize ourselves to have trash disposal services. In many regards, we can see climate as a similar problem where we are simply polluting the atmosphere in the same way that we would be just throwing our trash on the street. CO2 is different. You can't see it. You can't smell it. doesn't cause any local pain in the way that rotting trash would, which is why we have clearly figured out that problem sooner than the CO2 one. But we have all the tools in our, our regulatory, our business, and our investment toolkit in order to figure out how to create really strong markets for carbon removal. It's just a function of the the political element getting in place to unlock that market. So if the long-term goal is is for this stuff to scale, 
how are you phasing that in your mind? And, and for example, what are the organization goals in the next 12 months? In our mind, what we want to do is find the solutions that work today in existing markets and scale those as much as possible. In many cases, these are not the really large scale strategies. We're talking about carbon utilization today when it comes to climate impact, but they are huge economic markets. We've done back of the envelope calculations that looked at what if we switched out the market for fossil fuel based products today with products that came from CO2 from the air. And those markets are enormous. Trillions of dollars of top line revenue can be created through building materials, fuels, chemicals, a number of other more niche products. And so the idea is how do we start to get this waste to value economy started? How do we start to get tactical innovation funding that gets broad bipartisan support passed? And how do we start to get that next generation of entrepreneurs and scientists and policymakers all really engaged and working to push this field forward. So we have goals across all of those areas in terms of making sure that we're passing policy at the national level that funds carbon removal in smart ways, about getting entrepreneurs the support they need to start new companies and to scale the ones that they've just started in the carbon to value space, and to provide opportunities for that next generation of, of carbon removal practitioners to get started in the field with research, whether it's on the, the science policy or broader social pieces. If you could wave your magic wand and change one thing or one or two things, I mean, you, you pick, but that would most catalyze this transition, what would they be? So at the end of the day, what we need to have is policymakers that vote for strong, comprehensive climate policy. I don't know that there's a magic wand that's going to get us there today. And so I, I think the, what we need to do is not think about how we wave magic wands, but think really tactically about how we make sure that we're building that that broader policy system to support the whole range of climate policies that need to get passed today. I'm very confident that if we are able to fund research and development at a reasonable scale, and that if we're able to create the markets and regulations so that companies can bring innovation from the lab to the market and then scale those innovations, that the finance will flow. We see a ton of investors today, whether they're really early stage startup investors or big strategic companies looking to write $100 million, billion dollar checks to get projects in the ground. Everyone is eager to finance these projects if they make sense economically. And so trying to square that circle through the whole set of tools that we have is really important. And from a policy standpoint, I mean, you mentioned strong, comprehensive climate policy, but you also mentioned earlier in the discussion that there's a lot of debate about what that strong, comprehensive climate policy should be. Does Carbon 180 have a specific view or are there specific initiatives that, that you're working on or that you think will be most impactful? Yeah. So we think that what matters the most is policy that drives deep emission reductions. Exactly how it gets there 
there are a lot of pathways that could solve for that question. Like what? So everything from broad economy-wide carbon taxes or cap-and-trade regulations to a series of specific industry-targeted policies. So these are tax incentives for doing good things. These are financing incentives so that we can fund farmers to adopt new practices and startups to start new ventures, as well as industry-specific regulations that require more and more emission reductions and greater and greater carbon removals as well. So it's really going to be a portfolio of things that, that could work. And what we want is a suite of practices that actually drive emission reductions that get passed into law and are durable. And right now, there are a lot of different policies that are out there, many of which can achieve those goals. And, and we're supportive of of all of those knowing that where we come from, carbon is the the goal that these policies have to really address. So no no specific horse in the race other than to to put your weight behind anything that looks like it's going to be materially additive to your cause. Right. At the end of the day, we want carbon out of the atmosphere. And so there are lots of ways to do that. As what we worry about is fighting about which of those pathways is the best as opposed to getting compromise on something that is good and will simply achieve the goal. Are there any industries where this is starting to get some meaningful scale? If so, which? And if not, where's the fruit the ripest in terms of the ones that are ready to leave the nest? Yeah. So what we're seeing on the on the business side is that there are a lot of folks working to turn carbon back into value today. So we're seeing that happen in the building material sector, cements, concretes, aggregates. A number of companies are working on using CO2 to strengthen their building materials. This is great. It, you don't have to sell it on a carbon price at all. It's simply a better product that also happens to sequester carbon. We are seeing other companies figure out how to take carbon and turn it back into commodity chemicals that are used for plastics or other chemical applications. And then we're seeing folks address low carbon fuel markets with synthetic fuel production. All of these have enormous potential, but we're really just getting started today. The capital has only started to flow and we haven't seen a lot of large-scale projects in the way that we are seeing in the renewable energy space, for example. Earlier in the discussion, you talked about the big companies are slow moving and that the startups are nimble and moving a lot more quickly, which drew you to startups. So that begs the question in my mind, what is the role of the big strategics, whether it be the industrial processes companies or the, the big hydrocarbon companies? What's their role in this transition, if any? So I think every company has to think about how they're going to be positioned to operate and profit in an economy that sequesters more carbon than it emits. That economy no longer will allow and will provide returns to any of the stakeholders of that company if you're pulling carbon from the air and putting it into the atmosphere unabated. So we have to figure out how every single company in the economy can 
think about what their long-term strategy looks like so they're not just going to survive but really thrive and grow in that economy. And how would you describe their participation in the efforts that you're trying to champion at this stage? I would describe it as very nascent. There are some leaders. We have companies in the manufacturing space like Interface that have already committed to what they call climate take back. We have some oil companies, Occidental Petroleum for one, who has their CEO has talked about them being an oil company beyond an era of oil and they'll become a carbon company and a carbon management company. It's really early days right now. And what I've seen is that these companies are really focused on near-term shareholder returns. And without something changing that mindset, without investors or the shareholders demanding that they think about the long-term and change strategy, without policymakers saying, hey, you can't keep doing what you're doing, you have to change policy, there's no urgency in the space. And so right now, everyone says, yeah, we're starting to understand that this is going to be the economy of the future. We're starting to think about some of the things we could do, but they're not actually deploying their capital differently. They're not actually changing their business strategies to reflect this coming future. And at the end of the day, we don't have that much time to do this. A few decades might sound like a long time, but when it comes to really transforming the energy sector, transportation sector, food and ag, manufacturing, all of these different pieces of the economy, they're not, there's a lot of inertia in the system. And we have to figure out how to start making those structural changes today and not wait for 10, 15 years and think that we can just change on a dime because that's just not how capital works in in these big industries. So four years in, are you more or less optimistic than you were when you started? Oh, I'm way more optimistic than than when we started. There's been a ton of progress in the field today, and it looks nothing like the field when we started four years ago. What's going to make me optimistic is that in four years, we're not simply in a new narrative, which I would say we are now compared to four years ago, but we're actually starting to deploy capital, change policy, and make the strategic investments that we need to, to start building this economy of the future. We're going to have to go see lots of projects in the ground at large scale, not just artist renderings of what these projects will look like and excitement about that. And this is a whole other challenge in and of itself is figuring out how to deploy these projects in smart ways early on so we can learn figure out how to do them well for the future. So that's what I'm looking for. I'm looking for real projects, large scale, and not just a handful of of pilot projects that we can look to, but real structural change that policymakers and businesses are not just talking about a carbon sequestering economy of the future, but actually taking action to make that possible. So if someone dropped $100 billion in your lap and they didn't drop it in Carbon 180's lap, they dropped it in in your lap, Noah. And they said, you can deploy this however you like, but it's got to go towards the way that you believe will maximize the impact on helping us out of this carbon problem. 
where would you put it and how would you allocate that money? So this is a really challenging question because $100 billion is a lot of money. I think the way that that money can be deployed to the best and highest use is to restore a functioning democracy in America and to use that money to counterbalance all of the the special interest money that's flowing in. If we could figure out how to restore democracy so it's actually fair and that people can express their their votes in a meaningful way, I think that would solve a lot of the issues structurally here. If I'm constrained to actually talking a little bit more about the direct investments that I would make, I think a lot of them require investing heavily in research and development across a portfolio of strategies while simultaneously investing in the projects that will be the economy of the future. I think one of the the easy things to do would be to simply buy an oil company and figure out how to get that company stopping extracting carbon and starting to put carbon back into the ground, starting to use their their wealth of resources that they have in terms of human and financial capital to think about not just extraction, but removal. And so you'd have to think about how you can get really creative ideas with that amount of capital in order to really make a difference, I would say. If not, fine. But when you talked about restoring our democracy, any specific ideas of how you'd use that capital to do so? Unfortunately, that's a bit above my pay grade. But yeah, we just have to figure out how to get the special interest money out of the the political influence and make sure that everyone can vote. And I think once we do, what's clear is that the public really wants to take action on climate change and they want to do so in a smart way. And if that public preference can get reflected by our elected officials, I think that would be a really powerful way to change quickly. Anything I didn't ask that I should have or any parting words for our listeners? No, I think this is this is a great conversation to, to get started. I'm really glad that I, I had the opportunity to speak with you today. And I'm curious to hear about your climate journey going forward and where you come out of, of all of these interesting conversations and, and move forward. Well, one of the nice things about the, the podcast is that you know, initially when we started, I was toying with the idea of making it more like Reed Hoffman Masters of Scale, where it's it's really just each episode is on an island and it's going deep into that guest journey. But the kind of an aha for me was to have the common thread be my journey. And therefore, just by continuing to do the episodes, you'll actually be able to see, hopefully, my perspective evolve, but also showing my work along the way of why it's evolving and how it's evolving and what are the discussions and what are the key tipping points and and what's the pushback I'm getting and why is my worldview shifting and which thing did I have strong conviction in that got proven wrong and where I got convinced otherwise and it's all going to happen publicly. So I don't know where it's going to go, but that's one of the motivations of doing the podcast is to not only get there, but get there in a way that shows my work so that hopefully it can kind of bring some other people along for the ride. Well, did anything today change your mind or shift how you were thinking about the carbon removal space or broader climate journey that you're on? I mean, I came in without a lot of background and I think it gave me some good foundational knowledge to 
absorb and think through and then figure out where to go next. And some of that going next means reading. Some of that going next means I think you've helped clarify what kinds of guests would help fill in that perspective. So for example, some of the innovators on the front line, some of the people work on policy, what are some of the specific policies and then who's championing which ones and going and talking to each one of them. So I definitely don't have answers, but I think it has helped push the discussion forward, which means that it's doing its job. Wonderful. Well, glad to help. Noah, thanks a lot for coming on the show. Thanks, Jason. Hey, everyone. Jason here. Thanks again for joining me on my climate journey. If you'd like to learn more about the journey, you can visit us at myclimatejourney.co. Note, that is .co, not .com. Someday we'll get the .com, but right now, .co. You can also find me on Twitter at jjacobs 22 where I would encourage you to share your feedback on the episode or suggestions for future guests you'd like to hear. And before I let you go, if you enjoyed the show, please share an episode with a friend or consider leaving a review on iTunes. The lawyers made me say that. Thank you. Thank you.